State politics, taking care of your mental health, and the cost of visiting the Keys. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. Lawmakers settled on new insurance and condo reform laws last week, but it's a midterm election season after all. How your representatives are already campaigning. Plus, what were lawmakers' reactions to the shooting in Uvalde, Texas? Also, we speak with a mental health specialist in Broward County who reminds us what we can do to take care of ourselves after that traumatic shooting, when to take a walk, and when to call a professional for some extra help. Finally, that weekend trip you've been planning to the Florida Keys just got more expensive. We look into the implications behind a new tourism report. What does it mean for vacationers and the locals who call Key West home? All of that today on Sundial After the News. The program is made possible in part by support from the Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. New efforts to lower your property insurance costs are now law, and so are new rules to try to make condo buildings safer. During a special session last week, Florida lawmakers quickly passed bills that address roof maintenance for homeowners, soaring insurance premiums, and condo inspections. We're joined now by Mary Ellen Kloss, the State Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Thanks for joining us, Mary Ellen. Good to be here. Welcome. Hey, appreciate you. Uh, I want to start with this. Going into the special session, uh, lawmakers were tasked uh, with doing something about the high cost of property insurance in the state. Then midweek, it's announced that the condo reform measures people had been calling for since the Surfside collapsed almost a year ago were being added to the agenda. Uh, why was condo reform added last minute? Why now? Well, it was something that both the House and the Senate had spent a lot of time on in the regular session and they were pretty close to agreement on 90% of the legislation, um, but it fell apart because um, primarily the House didn't want to budge on a provision that required condo associations to put money in reserve so that they could pay for structural reforms when they needed them. Um, but the Senate saw that that had the potential price tag of really scaring a lot of homeowners. And since the effective date was July of this year on the on the House plan, the Senate did not want to go along with it. And I think that was primarily for political reasons. Um, the Senate president, for example, is running for agriculture commissioner. And if people were to see like, you know, a shocking price tag on their homeowners or their condo associations um, this fall, they might blame blame him. So they, they didn't want to, they didn't want that to happen. So they, they found a way to negotiate this by allowing for condo associations to put money in reserves, but they didn't have to, they didn't have to require them um, to have them in reserves until 2024. And they also allow for some condo associations with extraordinary situations to waive the requirement. So, um, so those, you know, they found a little middle ground, they got the um, inspections required and some of these other provisions, but they also found a way to postpone the pain. Wow. Now you mentioned 
some of the political implications here. Uh, lawmakers did pass some measures to try to help solve the property insurance crisis, but those are mostly shorter term and smaller fixes. Uh, was passing condo safety reform a sort of distraction from the bigger property insurance issue? You know, I really don't think so at all. I think um, I think that the the whole point of the property insurance special session was to have legislators do something that they failed to do during the regular session. And that was um, address, come up with some, some remedial um, efforts to influence the property insurance market. And uh, I, I think that the proposals they came up with um, could have some impact, but they're not going to be able to have, I mean, every analysis is that they won't have any immediate impact. Um, and that was part of the problem. They, they, they realized that, that this was too big of an issue or this issue was too daunting to make any immediate changes. So they patched together enough of a, a package that they think will have some longer term uh, effect. I, I don't think this was the condo stuff was really a distraction. I think that the, um, the property insurance legislation was kind of something they put together behind the scenes. Um, it didn't get a lot of debate. They didn't want it to have a lot of debate. So they rolled it out with short notice. Hmm. They had legislators hold meetings. They had um, very little evaluation and constructive input from the industry and they passed it and will and it's sort of like it, it's 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 sort of like a hail mary pass we hope this <laughs> works but we really don't know right right and homeowners are watching this hair mirror pass hoping no one drops it right <laughs> yeah <laughs> now now right. condo safety reform measures got close to passing in a regular session but lawmakers couldn't agree on some details uh what do you what, what took so long uh, to, to hammer it out I, I do think it was the price tag, um, the the idea that, you know, it, it really is kind of a failure of, regu of regulatory oversight. Um, and because the state allowed these condo associations to waive reserves if they had a certain majority vote or if they had a certain vote of the condo board, um, and they were and they were advised by law firms that allowed them to go ahead and do this. Um, and so. Uh, because the state never really, you know, required them to just just pay a little bit every year until you get your reserves built up, um, they the price tag is now enormous, and it's it's really going to hurt the places that are the oldest and have have potentially the need for the greatest amount of repairs. Um, it's a big unknown as to what that's going to look like, and. But I think it's important that um, we now have at least a requirement that homeowners are going to have to get some assessment and get a, an, an idea of what this um, what their building needs are, um, rather than just the superficial um, visual needs, which is which is often the focus because these condo associations want to make sure their resale price are, prices are. Um, still good. Right, right. And and homeowners have a long road ahead in terms of those needs. Um, for folks who just joined this conversation, uh, what were the takeaways from the condo safety reform that are now law? 
Okay, so when it comes to the condo safety bill, um, the the pieces of it are that there is now going to be for the first time um, a requirement that buildings have a structural um, uh, inspection, and um, and that is something that the state hasn't required buildings to have. Um, every, it, it used to be every 40 years. Um, now, 40 years is a really long time, as we learned with the, the tragedy at, at the Champlain Towers. So now the structural um, inspections are going to hap happen to occur um, every 30, at least every 30 years. And um, if you're closer to the coastline, um, within three miles of the coastline, that will uh, those inspections will have to happen um, every 25 years. Hmm. Um, and then after that, the inspections will have happened 10, you know, in 10 year increments. Sounds uh, pretty similar to Boca Raton. Uh, they um, also changed up their their requirements as well. Um, let's talk about property insurance. What were some of the takeaways for you on property insurance? So the property insurance session um, was one where um, legislators kind of tried to look at what were the causes of property insur of the property insurance increase, and you know they didn't really do the kinds of analysis that you'd expect them to do. Um, the industry has been blaming. Um, lawsuits as the reason, for, particularly lawsuits relating to roof repairs, where uh, property insurers have, have refused to do roof repairs for homeowners. And um, so they put some new limits on, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the requirements for a property insurer to cover a roof, a new roof or roof repair? Um, so um, what what those limits are is that if you have a, a, a home with a roof that has um, a roof of less than 15 years, the, the property insurer can refuse to replace your roof. Um, uh, so that is now, you no longer can sue your, your insurer if they refuse to replace your roof, if your roof is, is already 15 years um, or younger. Um, and if the roof is 15 years or older, um, the homeowner can request an, an inspection and then get insurance um, and, and potentially get uh, approval to have the roof repaired. They've also put a new provision in that says that a roof with more than 25% damage, um, that it doesn't, the insurer doesn't have to pay for a full replacement. Instead, they can only pay, they, it's, they're allowed to be just repairing the, the damage. So um, instead of a whole roof replacement, they now move to a partial replacement. Which sounds um, pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah, and, and then there's the other thing, and that is you know, another factor in what's happening with the property insurance market is that there have been a lot of um, property insurers that just don't have the, the kind of... Um, capital they should have. They, they have been writing policies for many years and they are, are uh, they 
have watched as their reinsurance rates have risen. And so many property insurance companies in Florida have um, stopped writing new policies or have closed down. And, um, and because of these confluence of factors, um, the legislature created sort of an emergency situation where they're giving um, $2 billion in reinsurance that insurers can buy and um, that will help them overcome some of these rising costs in the, in the reinsurance market. Mm. Um, but they're not allowing companies to just get the deal. Um, they're requiring those same companies to lower their rates in return for these this low cost reinsurance. Um, and then the final thing that they did that that is, you know, they hope will have some impact on this the, the soaring number of lawsuits is for the second year in a row they've limited the amount of attorneys the, the they, they hope will have well it's not just attorney fees but it's it's also um, the the cause for, causes of action for mm. for attorneys so when they can sue so um, those limits they hope will ultimately lead to lower rates, but it's good. it may take a while. Some provisions, some regulatory provisions. I'm speaking with Mary Ellen Claus, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. We're talking about what's what's come of last week's special legislative session. Lawmakers focus on condo reform and property insurance. You can catch up with Mary Ellen Claus reporting on our social media at WLRN Sundown. We are in an election year with the midterms coming up, and we've had two special legislative sessions so far this summer. Uh, Mary Ellen, are you expecting any more special sessions to come? <laughs> this, this is an election year, and the last thing someone who's running for office is they want to come to Tallahassee in the middle of the summer. So I will tell you unequivocally, I don't expect any special sessions unless there is a, a catastrophe. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, that, you know, in, we're heading into the um, the hurricane season and there's always the possibility that that something terrible can happen in that regard. But but hopefully that won't be the case this year and they won't be back. Is, is this a precedent, all of these special elections uh, this year? Not really. Um, special se- special sessions. My, my apologies. Yeah. Florida's legislature only meets for two two months a year. They technically come come and have committee meetings um, for several months before that. But, you know, it's it while some states legislatures are in session for six months or for the whole year, Florida only meets for two, two months. And because of that, you know, a state of with this 22 million people, one hundred and twelve billion dollar budget. There are a lot of things that need attention. And two months is has pretty much dependably, dependably not been enough. So um, we pretty much see a special session almost every year. You talked about political implications earlier in our discussion. Um, are there any lawmakers using this time to make promises ahead of their campaigns? Well, there, yes. I mean, legislators, that's what they do. They promise. <laughs> right. <laughs> Politicians, what do they do? They promise. Um, now the, the challenge is, and I, I urge everybody who is a voter to think about this is when, when a politician makes a promise, make sure you check to see if they followed it. Um, 
you know, that tends to be the job of reporters and journalists. Um, but I think voters need to hold, shoulder some of that burden. So yes, there, there's a lot of promises. There's promises about, um, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. Um, I think one of the issues that is really difficult for legislators to figure out how to, how to influence is pocketbook issues. Sure. And that's why an issue like property insurance is so difficult. But we've, we're also facing a unprecedented inflation costs. And while legislators on both sides of the aisle want to blame somebody else, um, those are pretty difficult things to legislate away. Right. Um, and and so, Mary Ellen, yeah. uh, l let's segue from those pocketbook issues uh, to something a little bit more um, traumatic, to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, after the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas last week, uh, what happened while lawmakers were gathered together in Tallahassee? What were Florida lawmakers' responses to that tragedy? You know, it was pretty classic and predictable. Um, the Florida legislature did something pretty remarkable in 2018 when, Park, when the Parkland massacre, massacre occurred. And that was for the first time in a generation. They passed gun control. Um, they limited um, the age of somebody who could purchase a, a, a gun from uh, 18 to 21, they banned bump stocks, they put new uh, red flag laws in place. But when this tragedy happened in Texas, they decided that it was not important to return to that and strengthen Florida's laws. Um, I think they think things are working just fine. So um, what we did see is, um, so when this tragedy happened, the focus continued from the Republicans who lead the legislature and certainly the governor's a Republican, their focus continually is we've got to, you know, defend ourselves, shield ourselves by putting more energy into mental health reform, um, which is certainly a need. Mm. And, uh, and that seems to be where they're placing their focus. Mm. Um, so uh, no, there is no more talk, no additional talk of strengthening Florida's laws, no talk of, you know, banning assault rifles, banning high capacity um, ammunition, um, you know, that that's just not on the table and I don't expect it to return. Right. I'd like to thank our guest, Mary Ellen Klaus, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Thank you so much, Mary Ellen. Good to be here. Thank you. Still to come, ways we can take extra care of ourselves and our mental health. Welcome back to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Chances are you've seen images and heard stories about last week's school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Those images and stories can be triggering, and they should be. 21 people were killed by a lone gunman. 19 of those who died were children. It's a tragedy that is all too familiar here in South Florida. The Parkland school shooting, where 17 were killed, happened just four years ago. The trial for that confessed shooter is just now in its beginning stages. News like this can be difficult to digest. It's a lot, and we can't escape it. With social media, those images and stories follow us everywhere. We're going to talk about some habits you can implement to take care of your mental health while still being informed. 
Joining us now is Dr. Jessica J. Ruiz. She is the Chief Psychologist and the Director for Behavioral Health Associates of Broward, the Counseling Centers of Goodman Jewish Family Services. Dr. Dr. Ruiz, I'm sorry, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, Dr. Ruiz. Uh, last week's tragedy has shaken the country and it hits home in South Florida. Let's start with your advice on how people can check on themselves, especially those who lived through the Parkland tragedy four years ago. Absolutely. I mean, this is truly, truly devastating uh, tragedy. And, and as you mentioned, it does hit home. Uh, our Northern Broward community um, has been uh, impacted directly. And, and with each of these mass shootings, um, you know, each person's being triggered in different ways. So, you know, there are a lot of ways, though, for us to to be mindful of our own uh, our own mental health and mental wellness, and and ensure that we we are taking time to to take care of ourselves. And I, I think, you know, as you were opening, there is um, social media plays a big role in this, and news. We have, we're always um, when something happens naturally. We want to learn about it, right, to figure out what happened and, and how can we stop this from happening again. And there's a lot of interest and curiosity and need to look in and, and, and to look at the news. Um, but, you know, with that comes, you know, disturbing details and images. So we want to um, try and find a balance between becoming informed, um, but also being uh, mindful of of what we're watching and what we're, how much time we're spending looking at these uh, disturbing uh, details. Right. Uh, you make a great point about that, uh, how imperative it is to find balance or during these times. Uh, you've worked with those who experienced that tragedy closely. Uh, what have you learned from that work that you apply today? Well, I would say, and uh, I've been working with this community since, uh, since the night of, uh, you know, February 14, 2018. And, and I think what I've walked away with is how resilient um, people are um, and how a tragedy like this uh, affects an entire community and it has longstanding impacts. So um, one of the things that, um, that really stood out right away is um, trying to identify who's affected, right? And right now it's, it's natural, I think that the parents uh, across South Florida and across the country are, are uh, anxious and nervous, um, as well as children. And I think it's, uh, it's a good time to have those conversations and see, you know, um, how people are doing, how they're taking in this information um, in order to take the next steps, which I guess we'll talk about soon. Oh, absolutely. And, and Dr. Ruiz, how, how, let's talk about those parents. How can parents and caregivers preparing in advance with information and even their mindset when going into these conversations? Absolutely. I, th I think at first is to take to check in on yourself first before you sit down and have the conversation because kids watch us very closely. Um, so if we're, you know, coming across as still quite anxious and quite nervous, they may pick, pick up on that and become more fearful and more afraid. So I think first is to, um, you know, find your people that you can and other adults that you can uh, process some of this with and, and ensure that when you're going to have this conversation that you're in a good place to provide a sense of, of support and calm uh, and safety for your child. I would say, you know, um, 
get armed with the information. What do you know, not just what the speculations are, but what uh, what are some of the facts? And then consider the age of your child. And um, and in these conversations with younger children, uh, a lot of detail is really not recommended. With older children, you want to kind of find out what is out there that your children may be seeing so that you're prepared when you have the conversation, um, what it is they may have seen and what questions they have. And that's a fascinating thing to consider. How, how do you know if you're ready to speak about this topic with a child that is, say, I don't know, eight uh, versus a child who's 15, 14? Um, how, how do you tailor your conversations? Um, I think probably thinking it through and knowing your child, right? If you have a child who's very, very anxious as you sit and have the conversation, you'll really want to prepare yourself for letting them know that they are safe and, and, um, and you know, they are safe at home. They are there, you know, with parents who care and love them and, and a school system and, and teachers who um, also want to ensure, you know, safety. Um, and, and again, that you're in, emotionally in the in the position I would not sit mm. down and have a conversation if um, if you yourself are still you know um, like many of us really reeling with this um, with the emotions that come with learning about this absolutely I always make checking in sort of like a habit uh, for when I greet people I always ask people are you hydrated <laughs> and it's kind of like <laughs> my my abstract way of saying how are you doing you know <laughs> um, <I> love that <laughs> are you hydrated uh, what, what advice do you have for parents and caregivers who are unsure about how to even start the dialogue I would say first actually ask what they know I mean so kids are having these conversations uh, I was actually you know speaking with a good friend of mine over the week and you know, I know uh, him and his wife were a little bit nervous about how to approach their eight-year-old son. And he said, hey, I think I was actually a little too late. And, and it was just uh, the, the day right after the shooting. And he checked in with them and seeing, you know, um, how he was doing and, um, you know, and uh, what he heard, if anything, uh, about what happened in Texas. And he says, oh, yeah, actually, I saw it on the news. And because he, he has a news app. And, um and when he talked to him, you know, his son shared, actually, he was really scared to go to school that day. Um, and the parents were not aware. So sometimes, you know, kids are watching and they're hearing things and they may not necessarily have a, a sense or awareness of how they're doing. Uh, and sometimes they don't bring it up to parents. So it is the adults uh, that oftentimes need to start that conversation. You're absolutely right. I had a conversation with my nephew not too long ago and yeah, you almost have to probe them. You have to elicit the questions or elicit answers uh, from them because oftentimes they will stay silent. So a lot of this work, checking on others, checking on children is about listening, right? Active listening. What should parents and caregivers be listening for? It's one thing to start a dialogue, but what are they listening for? Absolutely. It is about listening and observing. Um, so if, um, if our children are using, you know, the words like, Hey, I'm kind of scared, or I'm not so sure that I want to go to school or, you know, observing certain behaviors. So, uh, a child that, you know, typically was pretty excited to, to go out and now they're, they're kind of pulling back and staying home. Um, also children tend to not tell us, they show us. Uh, so we want to look at, at behaviors, um, as I mentioned before, like maybe pulling away from others, but we may also notice nightmares in children who are, um, either triggered or very fearful um, uh, about something that that might occur. Um, you know, in school, for example, if we notice that uh, children's grades are, are slipping, uh, if they're behaving in ways that, that are not like themselves, um, if they're showing irritability, 
Um, and, uh, you know, those are types of things for us to, to take a, a deeper look and say, you know, that something's going on. Um, let, let me, let me see if I can, um, op- have an open conversation with my child about just life in general and how they're right. doing. Now, those are sort of explicit signs that you can kind of mm-hmm. tell. Um, and there are also issues of, you know, kids being desensitized to all of this. They're swiping through TikTok and other social media platforms. Anecdotally, we've also heard of students who have been numb or unresponsive to this uh, recent shooting. How can parents and caregivers support someone who is responding in that way? No, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I've seen a little less of that. Um, having said that, though, it is a kind of a natural response um, when, you know, when we're seeing a variety and we're faced with a a variety of of, of disturbing information and news, it takes a lot out of us if, if we're feeling it and taking it all in. So oftentimes what we do is kind of numb ourselves or, you know, uh, try and shield ourselves from it. And and we see that in a variety of ways where there's kind of um, really this fatigue of people don't want to talk about certain things or after a while something that that's so significant as this um some people within within a few weeks or a month um may not be looking or thinking about this and actually that's important for survivors uh, of events um such as this and and other traumatic events uh, may often find themselves almost um pretty isolated after the fact because others are trying to just focus and move forward you know with their lives while those who are impacted are are still very much in it yeah that isolation people want to escape uh and children seek assurances right they they want to make sure or they at least they want to know that life will be normal um at at some given time how do we acknowledge the reality of the current threat or do we want to at all well, I think, um, you know, I think being able to take one step at a time, because sometimes we, we can become overwhelmed, adults become overwhelmed with the conversation as well, right? right. Can, can you really totally tell somebody you are always going to be safe and nothing is ever going to happen? As much as we wish that we could do that, that, that is not the case. Um, but what we can do, because you're right, children do look to us for assurance, is um, be able to provide them with accurate information. You know, we're, we're going into the summer now and there's several kids that, you know, are going to be starting summer camps, for example. It's a good time to figure out, you know, what are the safety, um, you know, the safety mechanisms in place at, um, at each of these locations and being able to have that conversation with the kids of, of knowing, you know, this is where, this is where you go. You know, these are the safety, uh, the steps that are already in place. So I think being informed is a big part of feeling, you know, safe um, in in whatever setting we're at, because right. we know what to expect. Absolutely. I'm speaking with Dr. Jessica J. Ruiz. She's the chief psychologist and director for Behavioral Health Associates of Broward. We're talking about staying on top of your mental health and how to best have these conversations with kids. You can find more local mental health resources on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Now let's talk about action. How do you know when maybe what's needed might be just some fresh air, maybe a walk or a slight jog, or when is it time to reach out for professional help? Great question. You know, first off, I think it's good to do a personal inventory. You know, what are the things that 
help me feel good about myself and, and kind of check in, have I been doing that lately? You know, I love your question of, are you hydrated? Sometimes it is a basic of, <laughs> are, you, are you actually hydrated? You know, are, are, are you drinking? Are you eating? Are you taking care of your basic needs? But also if, you know, if jogging is your thing, are you doing that? Um, are you, you know, engaging or, you know, with the, the types of things that bring you joy and peace and being able to tap into those first. If, however, you know, you're noticing that it's getting pretty hard to kind of make it through day to day, and it's not just having one or two days that are kind of off, but it's, um, it's now becoming a more consistent pattern, it is a good time to reach out. Or if you're noticing that your child is uh, continuing to struggle in a variety of ways, it's a good time to reach out for help because, you know, trained professionals can, can assess and kind of give guidance and information and really, you know, arms with, with tools uh, to help navigate, you know, our world. Right. And as we mentioned earlier, we can't escape the news. <laughs> uh, right. And there, there was a time when the news was on the paper, radio and television. Like I said earlier, now with social media, it's in our pocket all the time. We are constantly consuming it, um, often without making a conscious choice to do so. Um, should we be more intentional about uh, uh, what, what sort of news we're consuming? What tips do you have to accomplish that? Sure. And I think that this is really a, an individual, you know, uh, thing. Each person could be a little uh, different. Some people really find um, security and having, you know, having information and they're not as impacted. Uh, however, I would say that for many of us, because we are bombarded, I mean, even if you have your phone in your pocket, but you have notifications on and it buzzes and then all of a sudden you see a headline and, and anxiety could shoot up and kind of going in and, and reading on that. Um, so there are actual some, uh, if, if you notice you're falling in that category that it's like you're almost always on with news, you can take a look at your notification settings, you know, on your phone. You could limit and say perhaps, okay, by the end of the day, what's a good time of day where I can catch up um, with news in, in a way that is, you know, still aligned and healthy. You know, somebody who gets really nervous or stressed out in the evening, maybe the evening nude is not the time. Uh, to sit and and, uh, and watch and catch up with the day before bedtime. Um, so I think that there's individual differences here, but just remembering that you can unplug, you can turn off the phone, you can choose to not turn on the TV, and you can choose to do other things instead. Right. And, you know, technology isn't going anywhere. Schools are implementing technology every single day. We saw it during a pandemic where uh, students had to get used to distance learning, um, and so with some children and teens, so much of their life is online, on social media. How, how can parents and caregivers help their kids have a healthy relationship with technology, especially during this time and especially when technology really isn't going anywhere? Sure. Well, and, and I think parents knowing your children and if, if you have open lines and communication, your children will be sharing with you some of the struggles and challenges. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, young teens are feel a lot of pressure with social media about how their body should look or, you know, how they should dress or how they should interact with others. Um, and if we have an open line of communication, we may be able to pick that up and have conversations about that. Um, for younger children, you know, um, parents can set, you know, limits and times on um, on what kind of app somebody and how much time someone can spend on, on the Internet um, or, you know, on, on, on social media. And I would say also, you know, while we're talking about limiting on one and I would say, what are we adding to the picture? So uh, at the end of the day, you know, 
connection and relationships is um, what gets us through, you know, just about any situation. Mm. So if we're, I think, finding ways that we can increase connection, you know, family time, family game night, going out and doing things, uh, spending, you know, time with each child separately to really have those um, heart to heart conversations, just it's not all about limiting. We got to think of what we're going to add in its place. Connection and relationships, Dr. Ruiz. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing studies and data showing that teens' mental health around the country is plummeting. Uh, in your practice, are you seeing any signs of this crisis? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say that over the last two years, we've seen a significant increase in, in the teens and young kids that are reaching out. Um I actually see, I don't believe that it's that mental health issues were not there. One of, um, I guess if I were to look at some of the bright side of this is I think that young kids and teens are willing to think and talk about mental health. They're having those conversations with themselves. They're having those conversations um, at school. And um, I think we're starting to chisel away at the stigma of uh, mental health and, and reaching out for help. Absolutely. It's definitely become far more important, especially nowadays. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jessica J. Ruiz. She's the chief psychologist and director for Behavioral Health Associates of Broward. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. You can find more of this story and a list of free and affordable mental health resources on our social media at WLRN Sundial and on WLRN.org. Still to come, visiting the Keys for a weekend, it might not be as affordable as you remember. Welcome to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. It's become more expensive for you to take a vacation to the Keys. Parking, food, especially hotels. Those are all costs to build in when you plan a weekend getaway. Recently, the commercial real estate firm called Bercadia put out a report that found the Keys are the, quote, best performing market in the country. That's when it comes to hotel room occupancy, average daily rate and revenue per available room. All these factors add up to a much busier tour scene in Key West than we saw happen during the pandemic. To talk through some of what that means for residents and tourists, WLRN reporter Nancy Klingener joins me now. She covers the Florida Keys. Welcome, Nan. Hey, welcome. Hey, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you. <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, what do you think it? What do you think it is about the Keys that has people so interested in vacationing there, especially now? Well, um, during the the start of the pandemic, once tourism opened up again, uh, the Keys were sort of a Caribbean that you could drive to and that you could go to um, when a lot of those islands were still um, closed or making it pretty difficult to get to. So um, there's that. And, you know, the Keys have been a booming tourist destination for a long time. I think it was in 2017 that we had something like 5 million visitors. And that's a place with a population of, you know, less than 80,000. So, you know, the Keys have been popular for a long time. They, they function, you know, for South Florida, like, you know, the Jersey Shore or Cape Cod or, you know, one of these beach resort destinations you can drive to um, for people in South Florida and even beyond now. And in general, you know, the Keys are just a legendary place They're They are, you know, subtropical American islands. 
Wow. Five, five million visitors with a population less than 80,000? Right. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I'm missing out. I haven't been to the Keys in ages, but wow, I, I need to be part of that five million. <laughs> uh, what anecdotes and uh, what anecdotes and data are you seeing that show us that tourism is picking up in the Keys? Yeah, well, as far as um, anecdotes, I can tell you that um, most of us who live here, a lot of us have, you know, this alert system from the sheriff's office on our phones and especially on weekends. And, and it doesn't even have to be like a holiday weekend. Um, you'll just get these alerts saying, you know, basically there's huge traffic slowdowns trying to get through the upper keys with people either coming in on Fridays or leaving on Sundays. So just be aware of that. And, you know, don't try to be too impatient because there's nowhere else you can go. You know, you can't take an alternate route. Um, as far as data, Last year, our airport set a new record for passenger totals with almost 1.5 million people. And that was a 53% increase from the previous record. And then this year, year to date, we're already 25% over that last year, which was a huge new record. And the same thing is happening with the lodging taxes, the extra tax we collect on hotel rooms. Those were a total record last year. And so far this year, is 53% above last year. And a, fu a function of that is, is the high room rates because you know the taxes are a percentage of what you're paying for the room. But it's just, yeah, things are gangbusters. 53%, what a busy time for Key West. Uh, recently, two of our WLRN reporter colleagues visited the Keys for different weekend getaways. Education reporter Kate Payne tells us about visiting right around when the, the Conk uh, Republic celebration days were happening. Let's listen. We stayed in a houseboat, an Airbnb houseboat um, that was just sort of anchored out in the water uh, near Dredger's Key. And it was gorgeous, uh, but about a 20 minute uh, paddle from the boat to the land, uh, to the Newtown neighborhood, um, which, you know, is, is not for the faint of heart. Uh, you had to... Uh, there was no other way to get from <laughs> from the houseboat to shore. And thankfully, the Airbnb uh, supplied kayaks for us. But I was blown away by the cost of hotels down there. Um, staying on a houseboat was not necessarily our first choice. It ended up being a whole adventure just on its own to stay on the boat. But when we were looking for hotels... I, at the time, I don't remember seeing anything that was less than $300 a night. Um, but the other thing that got me was it seemed like every hotel, every place we looked at had a two-night minimum. So that really limited us as well. We had a great time. We loved it. But <laughs> the whole time we were down there, we were thinking about, like, we have to find a way to come here that's cheaper. You know, who whose backyard can we camp in? We'll do it. <laughs> Does any of that surprise you uh, to hear, Nan? No, <laughs> it does not. Um, and uh, yeah, kudos to them for, for taking that adventure. Um, but she's, she's absolutely right. The average room rate in the Keys as a whole is $390, which, you know, that's a year-round average. And um, you know, not just Key West. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and now in the long term, how, how do you think the pandemic has affected the economy of the Keys? 
Well, of course, uh, when they shut down all the hotels and the bars and put up a checkpoint, that pretty much wiped out our tourism industry for um, two months. And that was a pretty severe hit. Uh, but ever since things opened up again, even, you know, before um, vaccines were widely available, the Keys have really been doing really, really well, mm. and especially in the last year or so. Now, is this boom in tourism sustainable? Uh, good question. Well, <laughs> it's going to be tough because uh, of the uh, after effect it's having on our housing stock, especially. Um, another sector of the tourism industry that's really booming around here is vacation rentals. Even though most of them are legally limited to a minimum of a month, it's still worth it for homeowners um, who buy a second home to rent them out for a month at a time. Um, and you can just make so much money. And uh, the QS Citizen recently had a story that said that um, the number of Airbnbs and vacation rental by owners listed for rent in Key West increased 55% between uh, 2019 and 2022. And the mayor calls that a major threat. And you see it on Facebook all the time, people saying, I'm losing my apartment because the house sold and it's turning into a vacation rental. Wow. Now, are there any indicators that things will slow down at all? Well, there's been this sort of uh, feeling in town like, yes, things are crazy, but it's just because people can't travel to the Caribbean. Um, that doesn't seem to be slowing down yet, uh, but we'll see. We'll see how things shake out that way. <laughs> and WLRN Broward County Bureau reporter Gerard Albert III also visited the Keys recently. Here's what his weekend was like. So this was my first time going to Key West as an adult or um, paying for everything myself. I took my girlfriend down there who had never been to the Keys um, and we were not going to be able to afford any Airbnbs or hotels on the uh, on the actual island. So I looked at Big Pine Key, which is where we stayed. Um, we found an Airbnb there for about half of what you'd be paying in Key West per night. So we were able to stay two nights. The Airbnb was an RV in a trailer park, which was different, but it was really spacious and fun. And we saw a lot of Keys deer, which is something that wouldn't have happened if we stayed in Key West. So that was an added perk. And the drive was not bad. And it was a nice drive to start the day. Um, and my bucket list, Nan, is an RV so I can go see some key, uh, some deer in, in the Key West. <laughs> <laughs> That's my next trip coming up. All right. Uh, <laughs> are you hearing more stories from tourists about having to find alternatives uh, to staying in Key West proper? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, they're both, uh, both Kate and Gerard <laughs> did really well to do that. And if you look at Airbnb, especially around Key West, you will see a lot of boats. Um, a lot of them are actually in marinas, um, but a lot of them are also anchored out, like the one that Kate stayed on. And, and it takes you know, some intrepid tourists to paddle your, yourself and, and your stuff out there. Right. And obviously this has all, you know, this has some long term implications. Um, how are local officials and lawmakers responding to this tourism boom, but also to the positive and negative impacts it can have on residents? 
Yeah, I mean, we have the lowest unemployment in the state, right? So the, the problem everybody has here, um, which you see nationally and regionally, but here it's, it's distilled even more, is finding staff. Um, the good news is that the, the governments are making you know, lots of money off sales taxes and that lodging tax, part of that goes to the county government. Um, so there's some pluses that way, but the, the housing is of course the major, major threat and the city and different entities are doing everything they can, the school board to try to build housing um, that is affordable, but you just can't possibly keep up with this kind of demand. Sure, and, and I'm sure there are tourists who are conscious about this. How can tourists have a good time, but also leave behind a positive impact on those who call the Keys home? Well, tip well <laughs> would be my uh, initial. And also, you know, treat service people well. <laughs> you know, if, if a hotel or a restaurant is short-staffed, that's not the fault of the person who's trying to help you get your meal or, um, you know, bring you towels for the pool or whatever. So I would say uh, try to be understanding that the people who are on the front lines of this um, are not the ones collecting the lion's share of the big room rates you're paying. And they're also, uh, you know, the ones who are actually trying to help you. All right. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Nan. All right, Wilkin. All right, that was WLN reporter Nancy Klingender. She covers the Florida Keys for us. And that's Sundown for this Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Coming up tomorrow on the program, does medication to treat ADHD actually work? A new study from researchers at Florida International University found medication doesn't improve childhood performance in the classroom. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you, talk to you tomorrow. The program is made possible in part by support from Medical from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.